Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. We are a queer history podcast coming out on the 1st and 15th of every month, talking about people, places and things from around the world and throughout time. Today we are talking about the 14th century King of England, Edward II. So in terms of content warnings for this episode, the only really big scary one is that we have a bunch of executions, and the details of those executions are somewhat relevant. Apart from that, there's some period-typical homophobia, there's children getting married in a we're nobles sort of way, and there's one swear. (laughs) Okay. So if any of that sounds like something you'd rather not listen to, we have plenty of other episodes with different content and hardly any of them have executions. So the background to the world that Edward II is born into is the reign of his father. Any guesses as to what his father's called? Edward the First. Yes. Yay! <laughs> Good job. That sounded super rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. Yeah. <laughs> so Edward the First was very well thought of at the time and generally continues to be so. He's really the image of the contemporary idea of what a king should be. He was very well respected. He was a little bit frightening. He was this very imposing man, both in terms of his personality and his physicality. So he's like over six feet tall and he's very military focused. So he goes on the Crusades. He spends a lot of his later life trying to conquer Scotland. Oh, yes. That Edward. Yeah, that Edward. I mean, also the next Edward is also that Edward. Yeah. And he is also the king who finally gets conquering Wales squared away. So he does that in 1283, and he starts building a castle at Carnarvon to symbolise this. And while it's still being built, while it's kind of like half constructed, his son Edward is born there on the 25th of April, 1284. He's not the first son, but he's the only one who survives to adulthood. The others die quite young, so he knows from like childhood that he's going to be the king one day. He does have five sisters. The children of the couple are so beautiful that Henry III who's Edward I's dad, gives <laughs> Edward's wife, Eleanor, extra money because of how good looking her children are. <laughs> good job. So he's just, like, paying her to have attractive kids. Yes. Cool. Is Edward II also very attractive or just the sisters? No, they're all just babes. All right. Yeah. Okay. Not to kind of spoil Edward too much, but there's often a comparison made between what Edward looks like on the outside and what he's really like. So he looks like that image of an English king. He's, like, tall and fair-haired and strapping, and then he's just, like, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does this hold up in artwork of Edward? Is he very attractive in the medieval artwork? I don't think that any medieval artwork really depicts people <laughs> in a realistic fashion enough for us to know. And also True. a lot of the works that I know of that are like of Edward are like thought to be of Edward II. So So there's no portrait where we can look and be like, yeah, I would pay your mum. <laughs> that sounded more that sounded that way dirtier than you yeah. <laughs> That was uncomfortable. <laughs> Anyway, to sober this conversation up a bit, his mother dies when Edward is six in 1290. (laughs) Okay. Yep. So Edward grows up traveling around to different castles and then staying in the same place in winter. As he gets older, he starts to go to London when Parliament is sitting to sort of start seeing how it goes because he's going to have to run Parliament. When Edward I goes away on campaign, he becomes regent for the first time when he's 11. Which is very cute to picture, frankly. He's got like his seal that he's putting on documents and he's Aww. like signing things. But obviously he doesn't actually like have any real power because he's a child. And apart from that, he's very interested in tournaments and breeding dogs and horses. Do you know the names of his dogs? No. I do know that he had two falcons and he named them after like two of his friends who were in his court. 
<laughs> which sounds frankly quite confusing. What if I had two falcons called Eli and Irene? <laughs> We have, like, a letter he writes to his sister Elizabeth asking her to send her white greyhounds to him so he can mate it with one of his greyhounds, for we have a great wish to have puppies from them. Aww. When he's 15, he gets betrothed to Philip IV of France's daughter, Isabella. She is four years old. That is quite small. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) And Edward I marries Philip's sister, Margaret. So they're very, like, allied with France at this time. Um, Weird. Weird. I mean, if you're fighting yes. with Scots, you need to have the French on your side. This is true. Yeah. Like, not with you, but just, you know, like, not actively not, attacking you. Yeah, yeah this is true. Because they're not that great at attacking the Scots, even without the French. <laughs> Edward grows up with a circle of young male companions around him. So in 1301, he has about 10 of them. They're there to, like, get educated and to be his companions. Among them is Piers Gaveston. Who... Oh, this guy. <laughs> Yep. Why do you say this guy? I've heard his name before. In what context? Maybe a gay context. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember when we went and saw that play of Edward? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we did. did. Yes. The three of us went and saw, it was like a modern adaptation, uh, like a loose adaptation of Christopher Marlowe's Edward II, which is pretty gay. It was quite gay. Yes. Mm. Like the current one was quite gay. I'm pretty sure they like simulated sex on stage. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely, like, uh, we were in, like, the second row, and there was definitely a naked man, like, two meters from us. But, like, even the Christopher Marlowe one was, like, pretty overtly gay. So, yeah, you might have, like, spoilers a little bit for some of what's going to happen here, depending on how well you remember this play we saw, like, three years ago. I I remember that it ended horribly. Yeah. That's why we had the content warning. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. We did warn for, like, five executions. (laughs) So Piers Gaveston is the like lowest born of them. Sometimes people kind of talk about him as if he's just some like guy who wanted him off the street, but he's still a noble. He's just like yeah. quite a low-born noble. He's the only one who doesn't have a private tutor. There's also Gilbert de Clare, who was later the Earl of Gloucester, and Euda Spencer, just flagging them now because we'll mention them again later. <laughs> Piers' father was a landowner from Gascony, so like horror of horrors, he's foreign. His father had fought for Edward I a few times and he'd been held hostage and he'd escaped to England in 1296. And that's probably when Piers came to England as well. Wait, so his father was from... Gascony. And had fought well, against Edward the... No, 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 no. He'd fought for Edward I when he was conquering Wales. Okay. And then he, because he was a nobleman, he was captured and held captive. Yeah. And then he escaped and he ends up in England around 1296. And that's when we first see Piers in England as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Yeah. yeah. So Piers doesn't have any land to inherit. So his main shot at advancing in life is getting royal favor. <laughs> well. And he does. Edward I decides to place him in the household of his son, Edward, at Carnarvon. And then they become very close. <laughs> A chronicler tells us, and I believe this is, like, significantly after the fact, but, you know, to get an idea of what was thought, that when the king's son saw him, he fell so much in love that he entered upon an enduring compact with him and chose and determined to knit an indissoluble bond of affection with him before all mortals. So they're married now. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Like, all right. (laughs) I mean, an indissoluble bond before all mortals is pretty much married. We'll come back to Piers Gaveston, but just to talk a little bit about Edward's life during the reign of his father. 
So, as I said, Edward I and also Edward II's reigns are full of constant engagement with the Scots. Yeah. So there's essentially, there's just constant campaigns against the Scots. And I was at a loss of how to structure this episode that didn't just have me every five minutes being like, all right, we need to pause things because they're going to go up and fight the Scots for a year and like not achieve anything and then come back. <laughs> so we're just going to talk about the Scots now. So basically they'll go and they'll fight the Scots until it's winter or until they don't have any money or until there's a treaty or until they're like, no, 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 we've totally conquered the Scots now. Then they go home until they have money or it's summer again or the treaty runs out or the Scots are like, you don't own me. And then they repeat this again for like decades. Okay, guys. Yeah. But some like more notable interesting things about their Scottish campaigns. So at one point when Edward I thinks that he's done it, he takes the coronation stone away from Scone Abbey and puts it beneath the English coronation chair in Westminster Abbey. Which is just so degrading. And it stays there for 700 years until some students from the University of Glasgow show up in 1950 and nick it. I'm so proud of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Ian, like, pulling it out from under the chair, they drop it and it breaks in half. And then they're like, oh, and they carry it out. There's two cars that they've brought and there's two people in each car and they each take one half of this rock. And two of them, a man and a woman, are sitting in the car and there's like a police officer who comes over to see what they're doing and they're like, oh, quick, make out. And they make out. <laughs> <laughs> That's with, very good. With the stone in the backseat. <laughs> and they end up like hiding it in a field for a while. Uh, and when it's discovered missing, it's the first time the border between Scotland and England has been closed in 400 years. Oh, I wow. didn't know that. So they get it to Scotland and they hire a stonemason to mend it. And in the middle of it, they put a brass rod with a piece of paper that says something we do not know to this day. <laughs> and then the next year, the police are tipped off and they find it in an abbey and they take it away. And they find out who did it and they question them, but they decide not to prosecute them because, like, this is a political nightmare. Yeah. And then it was returned for real in 1996, except for when the English need it for coronations. So it's still the situation that the English are going to get coronated on top of the Scottish coronation stone. So I'm really keen to see politically how that's handled in... Oh! I mean, I'm not, like, hopefully not that soon. God save the Queen. But... um... (laughs) Like, we'll, we'll probably yeah. find out in the fairly near future when we have to transport it from Scotland back to England in order to coronate someone on it. Yeah, that's true. I have questions, though. There's been much speculation that because of Brexit, they're going to have another go at the Scottish independence referendum. Mm. Mm, what happens then? Do they just keep the stone after that? I mean, presumably. Yeah, I mean... If I was a Scottish and they were like, hey, can we like have that back again to coronate someone on? I'd be like, no. no. <laughs> I've heard a story, and this is not backed up in any way, that the stone they got back was not the real stone. I've heard that too. Yeah. Um, and I think there's just like a bunch of points in its history where we're not sure if it's been swapped. Like when yeah. the English took it, there's a theory that they hid it and there's like there's legends that they put it in the river. And things like that, and they gave them a fake one and stuff. So, like, the continuity of this stone is already pretty dodgy. (laughs) And the other thing I wanted to mention is just that this is the wars that William Wallace is leading forces in. Which one of the Edwards is Longshanks? The first. The first. Edward Longshanks, six foot two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I just wanted to mention it because Edward II is in Braveheart. Ah. I've never seen Braveheart. Yeah, don't. It's just known for being, like, wildly historically inaccurate. Mm Mm-hmm. It was, like, literally, like, second or something like that on a list of, like, like most historically inaccurate movies of all time. I want to know <laughs> what movie number one is. I don't know. 
Yeah, he's in Braveheart as this, like, very effeminate, like, obviously gay-coded mm-hmm. sort of minor villain, basically. I That's all right. Yeah, they were criticized for it, for making him this, like, gay caricature, and they were just like, eh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I'm not, like, recommending anyone see this movie. I saw it in high school in my, like, history class. I don't actually remember if it's any good, but it has offensive queer representation and Mel Gibson in it, so, like... It also has William Wallace have an affair with Isabella of France, Edward's bride, who is like four years old at the time. But in the movie, she's an adult woman who doesn't like her gay husband and wants this objectified Scotsman. In 1300, Edward is 16 and he goes on campaign for the first time. So he's one of four commanders. He has like the rear force where he can't really like do anything, but... You know, he's there. I know it was normal at the time, but just imagine being, like, a soldier who'd been to Scotland every year for the past, like, 30 years and just random 16-year-old being in charge of you. <laughs> I think at this point and for, like, the next few, he has, like, very seasoned military commanders who are pretty much, like, I'll be calling the shots here. But, yeah, like, monarchy isn't very good. No, it's <laughs> bad. A bad idea. <laughs> So they besiege a castle and they capture the castle and then the Scots just kind of like melt away into the landscape and avoid further conflict as they tend to do. And the campaign achieves very little as they tend to do. In 1301, he becomes the Prince of Wales and the Earl of Chester. So this is kind of like recognizing his achievements so far and also trying to set him up for some responsibility. So he spends several months traveling around and having people swear fealty to him, which again, just is like 17 year old showing up and being like, kiss my ring. Picture all the 17-year-old boys, you know, like, how obnoxious would that be? (laughs) His powers are still quite limited, though. People are sending him, like, petitions, being like, make this judgment, and they're being like, we're just gonna redirect that to, like, someone who knows what they're doing. They go back to Scotland in 1301. So this is what the campaigns are like. It's literally like, the campaign of 1300, the campaign of 1301, the campaign of 1303. And nothing happens every time. I mean, not really. Like, there's, like, back and forth. Like, there are times where they nearly conquer scotland yeah but then they like leave and the scottish are like well we're still here so we're gonna reassert control a bit and then there's a whole bunch of times that they go up there and then they just like achieve nothing yeah but yeah they go back to scotland in 1301 and now he has his first independent command so they're like attacking from both the east and the west and so he has control of the whole western arm of the english forces uh his like little gang of young men go with them so Piers gaveston is here just keeping peers in our minds. (laughs) But again, the Scots avoid direct conflict and they leave. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very clearly being groomed for command, but that doesn't mean his dad likes him very much. Oh. In 1304, they quarrel, maybe because Edward insulted a man called Walter Langton, who is one of Edward I's, like, chief advisors. Okay. And so Edward I takes away a bunch of Edward's funds and reduces the size of his household, and this means that a bunch of his companions are sent away, including peers. Oh, no. Yeah, tragedy. When Edward is crowned Edward II, one of the first things he does is to dismiss Walter Langton. <laughs> Petty. Petty as hell. And then in 1307, they fight again, and this time peers individually is sent into exile. Records at the time say it is because of certain reasons. <laughs> I say. <laughs> Gay reasons. A later chronicler says it's because Edward asks for peers to be given a county. 
And, like, this is later, so this isn't, like, a real direct quote of Edward I, but he has Edward reply, You low-born son of a whore, do you want to give away your lands now, you who never gained any? And then he threatens to disinherit him, tears out a bunch of his hair, and throws him out. Oh, my God. And they don't speak for several months. Wow. I feel like calling your own child son of a whore (laughs) is, like... Not that great an insult. Why would you treat Eleanor of Castile this way, Edward? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so Piers is sent into exile, but he's sent away with, like, ample time to, like, make arrangements and leave, and he still has an allowance, and he gives him a bunch of presents. So it doesn't seem like Piers is, like, the problem. Edward's being punished, but it's yeah. to do with Piers, clearly. Yeah. I think the way this is generally treated is that this isn't specifically Edward the First isn't like, I know that you're gay with my son, get out of my country. He's just like, you're not very well reasoned regarding this man. Mm. Stop giving him huge tracts of land. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. So 1306, Robert Bruce declares himself King of Scotland, and Edward I is like, hang on, I'm King of Scotland. And so they go off to really, war. Really, Edward? Yeah. <laughs> Edward is knighted first, uh, along with, like, tons and tons of other men. It's very lavish. It's compared to, like, the coronation of King Arthur. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. This includes Piers Gaveston before he's exiled, so he's a knight now. Wait, so have we gone back to before his exile? In between exiles, he's made a knight. Okay. Edward is, by this point, intended to, like, pretty much be running the Scottish campaigns because Edward I is 68 and he can't really travel on horseback or anything like that. He's really past his campaigning age, but he's very yeah. into conquering Scotland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can okay, verbally Edward. abuse Edward if you want to at this juncture. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I have anything to say that, like, particularly constructive. <laughs> we should probably mention at some point that we're all, like, varying degrees of Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> so Edward's like riding on ahead of him and they have a couple of years of back and forth and they're not really achieving anything. Uh, and then Edward I dies. Does he just die? Like, he's old. He's old, yeah. Yep. Edward is down south and he like rushes up north to get his father's body. Edward I had wanted his body to be carried with the army going forth so he could keep like conquering stuff after oh he Oh my died. god, Edward chill. <laughs> <laughs> Did he put, like, an end date on that? Or he's like, the English army should just carry my corpse around from now on. Um, so I, I saw one source that it was until the Holy Land was conquered and another that was it was until Scotland was conquered. And okay. I didn't, like, check the source for this, frankly. So he did at least have, like, an end point yeah. on this. It was like, finish my campaigns and then you can stop carrying my corpse around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Edward II is like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Fair. He doesn't really care about Scotland all that much. And so he brings his father's body down south to bury him at Westminster. At this point, everyone's feeling relatively positive about Edward becoming king. He's been pretty well prepared. You know, he's been acting as regent and sitting in a parliament and doing campaigns and is good looking. This can't possibly go wrong. Yeah. So his lords come and swear fealty to him and everything's great. Uh, And then one of the first things that Edward does is to recall Piers Gaveston. And he arrives in England in early August, so about a month later. And Edward makes him the Earl of Cornwall on August 6th, possibly without, like, telling him about it first. So Cornwall is very wealthy because of its tin. So it's, like, quite a gift. It's only really meant for the royal family, even up to today. It bothers me that, like, we can still give Cornwall as a gift yeah. today. Like Me too. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> so it really should have gone to one of Edward's, like, younger half-brothers. And instead he's giving it to this random Gascon. Why does Edward have younger half-brothers? Because his father married Margaret, the sister of 
the oh yeah that's right and then they had children as one does yeah that's right no i forgot about the remarriage but... yeah they're around they don't really like do anything though yeah edward also arranges a marriage to his own niece margaret claire so he's essentially created a situation in which he's like a part of the royal family now um, and he also gives him just, like, a bunch of gold and a castle and all this stuff. And everyone's very angry about this because it's just hugely excessive. And also there's a bunch of, like, classism and xenophobia happening there because he's lawborn and yep. not from England. Also, Edward's reign quickly becomes quite problematic because he just has very little interest in doing any work. Relatable. <laughs> <laughs> so his dad dies in early July and then he goes up to get his body. And he, like, just kind of hangs around until early September before he goes back to England to arrange his marriage and the coronation and the funeral. Do you mean to arrange Piers' marriage? No, he's to arrange his, okay. It's time for him to get married to the no longer four-year-old. Okay. She's yep. 12 now. That's not okay. No. I mean, they're not going to have children for several years and yeah. everything. So, like, it's not okay. But, like, it could be worse. He just generally won't do anything in any kind of timely manner. So people will be like, this is a very urgent decision. And then he'll just, like, leave for a week. He'll postpone meetings or he just, like, won't show up to Parliament and things like that. When presented with a series of options, he generally just does whatever's easiest. He often does whatever the last instruction was to him. So if a bunch of people (laughs) are telling him conflicting things, the last person, he's like, I'll do that one. And he just generally relies far too much on other people to make all the important decisions from him. He's also just very impulsive. He's very easily bored. And basically, he's just not at all suited to be king of the country. It's created a situation where people are able to and, like, kind of forced to take power from him. Mm-hmm. So the kingdom becomes increasingly unstable under his reign. And I feel like he is basically capable of running it. He just kind of, like, chooses not to. Okay. I mean, this is also the problem with monarchy. It is. Anyway, also, his hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's noted that he has a passion for things like rowing and swimming and breeding animals and digging ditches. <laughs> That doesn't sound like a fun hobby. And also, uh, just generally, like he pays a lot of attention to the specifics of the castles he's building in a Uh, in a like very minute way. And basically, the reason why these things are focused on is because they're considered to be very like rural occupations that aren't befitting a man of his status. Okay. Yeah. So he likes to hang out with like oarsmen and singers and things like that. And people, like, make a big deal out of this yeah, to be yeah. like, well, you're, like, not a fitting figure to be king because, you know, you mm-hmm. want to dig things. <laughs> <laughs> he, at one point, a bit later in his reign, when things aren't going so well for him, he just, like, withdraws from politics for a little while. And he finds this little building within the precincts of Westminster Abbey called Burgundy. And he just kind of, like, retreats there to, like, renovate it. And he, it is said that he preferred to be called the King of Burgundy than the King of England. Aww. Yeah. And he's expected to keep um, attacking Scotland, and he just kind of doesn't really have any interest in doing it. I, I feel that. like that's fair. It hasn't really gone anywhere yet. Yeah, yeah. Like, why waste your money? Uh, there's enormous pressure to do so, yeah. especially because some of the lords have, like, lands that are kind of nominally theirs in Scotland or in the very north of England. Oh, they yeah. keep getting attacked and taken from them, and they want the income from that. So mm. there's this huge pressure to go and keep conquering Scotland. So occasionally, well, like quite often really, he makes these like token attempts at dealing with Scotland, but it doesn't really progress under his reign. Like if it's not going to progress under Edward I, who is really fixated on this, like the whole end of his life, it's not going to progress under Edward II, who doesn't care. 
Also, his army's weaker because sometimes his lords just, like, refuse to go with him, either because they have too much admin to do uh, or because they just hate peers so much that they won't be on a campaign with him. What's wrong with peers? Do they... Is this just a, like... He's a young upstart who doesn't deserve anything he has and has too much sway with the king. So they're That's really... It. They're just kind of jealous that Edward is giving stuff out to him all the time. Mm, yeah, basically. When you say they have too much admin to do, is that just, like, part of the standard work of being a lord? Or is that, a, like, they have to run the country because Edward sure isn't doing it? Um, well, they create this kind of big admin task themselves that I'll talk about in a sec. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. But it's just... They're just kind of like, oh, no, I've, like, I've got stuff to do. I, I'll, um, I'm washing my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Come conquer Scotland with me. Sorry, I'm washing my hair that day. Yeah. Also, once they get to Scotland, when they are campaigning, he's, like, not very good at leading the campaigns. So once he gathers this huge army, but he makes them go, like, enormously quickly up to Scotland. So when they get there and they're ready to fight a battle, they're all exhausted. So they do badly. There's uh, one instance in 1313 where they go to besiege Stirling Castle, which is a Scottish stronghold at the point. And the Scots come to meet them in battle and the English cavalry gets all bogged down. The Scots rush in and just kill a bunch of them and they don't really have the organisation or the time to get their archers or their infantry in there. And then Robert Bruce lines all his non-combatants up on the hill so it looks like he's got another army there. And the English just freak out and leave. (laughs) Edward, to his credit, I guess, refuses to like abandon his troops until one of his men is like, nope, you're going to die, I'm grabbing your horse's reins and we're leaving. Okay, no, I respect that. Yeah. Like, he seems to have been personally, like, reasonably compassionate and not cowardly or anything like that. He just, like, he just shouldn't have this position. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them drown in the river Mm. that's there. All of their stuff is left for the Scots to plunder. That's bad. Yes. But the real big problem with his reign is Piers Gaveston. We've already seen how he favours him. Yeah. Very overtly. One chronicler said that there were two kings, one in name and one in reality. So that's an idea of, like, how much influence Piers is seen to have. He's understood to be very arrogant because he's seen to have been, like, risen way above where he's meant to be in life. Mm -hmm. Um, He's only successful because the king likes him, etc., etc. And he's seen to be a bad influence, like, he was just leading the king into all of these vices of gluttony and all of that and away from listening to his nobles who he should be listening to Piers on one hand he kind of seems pretty legit like when he gives him like administrative positions or military commands he generally just kind of like gets it done reasonably well that's good maybe he should have been the king Uh, yeah I think he would have been a better king than Edward like sometimes Edward gives him tasks to do or decisions to make because he doesn't want to and then Mm -hmm. Piers just kind of like gets them done he also uh, however does kind of exacerbate the situation in some ways he is hated by the nobles because he gives them all insulting nicknames okay Okay, Piers go on so he calls the Earl of Gloucester a cuckold bird Mm -hmm. Uh, he calls the Earl of Warwick a black dog so he goes off to France to marry uh, Isabella in 1308 so he's like been king for like six months she's 12 as I said and while he's gone he makes Piers regent which is seen as completely unacceptable it would have again made more sense for him to leave one of his half brothers as regent and then they come back and organise the coronation so it's this massive affair they set up all of these temporary buildings there's like 40 ovens there's fountains of red white and spiced wine (laughs) Um, I want a fountain of spiced wine I too and you know like that it sounds quite good from that, but then also no one's really, like, supervising anything. No one's really making sure everything stays on track. So it's just a complete mess. 
It's just chaos. There's also a temporary wall that falls down and crushes and kills a man. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, still happens to this day. Yeah, and it's still bad and a result yeah. of poor supervision. Yep, I feel like that's a non-controversial <laughs> yeah. yep. At the coronation, it's customary that various items of the king's regalia is brought in by one of his lords, or like yeah. several of his lords. And Piers gets to carry in the crown, and he's walking right in front of Edward. He also gets to put the spur on the king's left foot. So the right one is put on by the brother of the king of France. So it gives you an idea of the like mm-hmm. status this implies. He's also dressed in like purple and he's got pearls everywhere, even more lavishly than the king. Okay. Edward has tapestries made for this that bear both his arms and... Okay, so there's no like reasonable justification for him doing that. No. Okay. No, it would have been expected maybe that he'd have his arms and Isabella's. Yeah, that would make sense, given that they are, in fact, married. Yeah. The lords are absolutely outraged by this. The queen's relatives go off back to France in a rage, believing him to be more infatuated with Piers Gaveston than they are with his new queen. I feel like based on the evidence available to them, that's (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) They were correct, yes. Yeah. Isabella writes to her father complaining that she's being neglected for Piers Gaveston. Mm -hmm. Um, And the nobles protest in Parliament. They say that Piers is committing treason by alienating the king from his lords and all this other stuff. And Edward starts to prepare for civil war. Oh, that's a very like this situation where they've gone. He's too in love with you. That's treason. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I feel like he could have like got out of the situation quite easily if he just calmed down a bit. Like you didn't need to dress Piers in these purple robes and put his arms on the tapestry. Like you could have had a solid relationship without doing that. Yep. And well, what he does is he relents and he allows Piers to be sent into exile for like the third time. <laughs> Maybe he should just set him up in, like, a nice island somewhere with, like, a very nice house and just, like, go and visit him. I feel like if he'd been a little bit more moderate, this would have all been much more reasonable. Yeah. yeah. It's also the thing where the way Piers is generally thought of by historians isn't that he was, like, very greedy and constantly, like, bugging Edward for more power. That mm. he was just, like, very close to the king and as a result of that kept getting power. Mm. So I just, like, Edward stopped it. Yeah. Yeah. So what Edward does now that he has to go into exile is he makes him the governor of Ireland and gives him all of the income from that country. Okay. So <laughs> when Piers goes into exile, where does he go? Ireland. Ireland. I He's mean, the governor of Ireland. I would believe that an English monarch would make someone a governor of a place where they were not. Yeah, that's true. But basically, the lords feel like they've kind of been tricked because they've gone like, oh, send him away. And he sends him just kind of like around the corner and gives him a ton of money and a really prestigious position. Yeah. So they're quite embarrassed by that. At this point, the Pope excommunicates him. <laughs> or uh, just... Just being a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Edward, you're too extra. No, Not no. Edward, Piers. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. If the Pope had excommunicated the King of England, you'd know about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they ex- excommunicated a lot of people. So yeah. can we assume that's a thing where, like, the Lords of England wrote a letter to the Pope and were like, can you do something about this situation? Yeah, the Pope kind of keeps intervening in this. I don't uh, have much about it because it didn't really result in a ton, but he mm-hmm. has time, so he just sends Edward letters and is like, can you calm stuff down with Piers? <laughs> <laughs> Piers, meanwhile, is in Ireland, proving himself to be, like, quite a competent military governor. I so, quite like Piers. Yeah, I like Piers too. <laughs> I feel seems... bad for Piers. Yeah. 
Like, don't fall in love with kings in the medieval period. Just don't do it. No. No. And even before he leaves, Edward is thinking about how he's going to get it back. So he spends all this energy making alliances with men who he feels are, like, able to be brought over to his side of things. He writes to the Pope. He negotiates with all of his lords to carry out tax reforms that they want done in order to get him back. So he can get stuff done, is my point in saying this. He's perfectly uh-huh. able of achieving a goal. He just never bothers unless it's like about Piers. personal stuff that he wants. Yeah. And he succeeds in mid-1309. His exile is repealed and he's like unexcommunicated. Edward had preempted that this was going to happen and he has Piers back a month early (laughs) (laughs) you made a mistake and they're really really happy and they spend christmas together and it's great yes and then the nobles are mad (laughs) and they request that a council of 12 ordainers be appointed who are able to issue ordinances with a capital o to just kind of like fix whatever they think is wrong um and edward is like rightly quite suspicious of this but he essentially has to so yes. Mm-hmm. And they end up selecting 21 men, not 12. And they pick a lot of people who had served Edward I as his ministers and exclude any man who had relied on Edward for political advancement. Yeah. And they start work on these ordinances, which is basically like this massive list of like everything they feel Edward is doing wrong in March of 1310. So this is the thing where people are being like, oh, we've really got some admin to do. We can't come to Scotland. We're writing a list of all the things you've yeah. done wrong. Yeah. It's taking a long time. Busy talking smack about you sorry. <laughs> so they complete them in august of 1311 and essentially they're just this massive list of ways that they want to limit his power they're trying to get rid of people people who are influencing him negatively so like peers yeah they want him exiled by november 1st they wanted all of edward's income to go to the treasurer who then decides what it should be spent on edward is forbidden from making war leaving the country appointing a regent appointing ministers using his seal without parliament's permission Mm-hmm. Now, I kind of feel like, frankly, this would be, like, a good deal for Edward. He doesn't want to do this work. Just be like, no, no, no. Like, you can have whatever you want. Just let me have, like, a castle to renovate and my boyfriend and I'll just be a figurehead. Yeah. But he's furious and doesn't want this at all. And he kind of just ignores it. Like, these pass. And he just ignores it. He just ignores it. Yeah. Piers is exiled. He goes off to France. But because the French royal family hates him because their daughter's husband is in love with him. Yeah. It's very hard for him to be in France. And so he ends up just like back in England by Christmas time. (laughs) And the Lord's like, all right, that's it. We're capturing him. (laughs) And so he and Edward are in this castle and then a bunch of Lords led by the Earl of Lancaster show up and attack the castle and quickly take the castle and they have to flee in a boat. And Isabella is essentially just left to flee herself. How old is Isabella at this point? She's like about 16, 17. Okay, okay. Edward and Piers go off and hide in separate castles. Within two weeks, Piers has to surrender because there's no many supplies. Mm-hmm. And the Earl of Pembroke comes to escort him to another castle for safekeeping. The other castle actually belongs to Piers, and it might be the case that the Earl of Pembroke is being paid by Edward. Oh, okay. So this is kind of okay at this point. Okay, so he's run out of supplies and he's come in and he's going to take him elsewhere, but it's not... Yeah. So they're traveling, and then he's left alone in a house for a little bit. And then the Earl of Warwick hears his nearby and gathers, like, 140 guys and shows up and is like, you're coming with us. All right. And Piers is like, I'm coming with you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so they take him to Warwick Castle, and a bunch of his enemies gather, and they do a kind of, like, mock trial, and they declare him a traitor, and they execute him, and he's banned. Oh. 
Oh. And Piers is dead. Oh. Goodbye, oh. Piers. I really yeah. liked Piers. I feel like he was a pretty good guy. I'm sad for Piers. Yeah. I thought we might pause here and have a bit of a, like, gay chat about this. <laughs> Just about how historians have reacted to his and Piers' relationship in terms of, like, were they a couple or not. So obviously the case for them being a couple is that they're just excessively close and Edward is giving him everything. Chronicles say that he loved him beyond the bounds of moderation. They describe their relationship as this unique and excessive love. (laughs) Pretty much the one, like, key argument against them having been in a homosexual relationship is one that was made by a historian called Pierre uh, Chaplis. He thinks that we place kind of too much focus on this potential homosexuality and not enough on the fact that Edward and Piers get called brothers a bunch of times in the Chronicles. So we have times where one chronicler, for example, calls him his adoptive brother. Another similarly says they have killed a great earl whom the king had adopted as brother. So he says, you know, this could be a figure of speech, but also to him it seems like it's more than that. And he argues that what is happening here is like a formalized contractual blood brother relationship. The reason why I bring this up is because I looked at about like half a dozen different biographies just to get an idea about like what was out there about peers. More than half of them, like maybe four or five of them said, you know, this seems homosexual. However, Pierre Chevalis has said this, so maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is a very prominent argument in the field. So obviously the whole blood brother relationship is like two men who aren't related, kind of swearing to figuratively be brothers. And it means that they would be loyal to each other and they'd share booty in war and they'd look after each other's spouses. If one of them died, they'd ransom each other and things like that. And so his argument is that, well, like that would explain all the stuff he does. And he gives a bunch of examples about other blood brother relationships so he gives the example of in the seventh century the king of mercia and the king of northumbria formed a blood brother bond he gives another example where there were these two men utred and thurbrand and thurbrand kills utred and in response to that utred's son kills thurbrand reasonable so we're in the cycle of violence now yeah so thurbrand's son is like utred's son why don't we become blood brothers and we'll end the cycle of violence? And they do that. Mm-hmm. And then he kills him anyway. Oh, oh, come on. Yeah. You were being so good. Yes. So that, that is a lot like a kind of political marriage. Yeah. I was going to say that it's very clear in the examples that he gives. And these aren't like the only examples, to be clear. He mm-hmm. says it's quite common amongst kind of like low inability at the time as a kind of like safeguard. But these are the examples that he gives. And it's very clear that in these cases, these two men have political motivation to forge a bond. There isn't a political incentive to forge a bond with Piers Gaveston. He's much mm. lower born than Edward. Yeah. Yeah. There's only like this strong personal attachment that means that they hypothetically made a blood brother arrangement. And then sure, maybe that's why he gave him all this stuff. But that still doesn't explain why this strong personal attachment exists in the first place. Yeah. Also, it very much reminded me about like any number of other episodes we've had where like a same-sex couple uses like available social institutions to kind of form a stand-in marriage when they can't have a legitimate marriage. Yes. Yeah. There's also... It's not that uncommon in a lot of the ones we've come across for people to call their partner sister or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not that 
weird. I did even see a couple of historians who were like, well, he calls him brother, so that 100% rules out a sexual relationship. And I was like, that's not how that a works. A stupid argument. Yeah, like, that sounds weird to modern ears, but... Yeah. I mean, it even only sounds weird to, like, modern Western ears, I guess. That's true, yeah, too, yeah. yeah. I think also just the level of unreasonableness in Edward's behaviour towards Piers. Like, the fact that he's put, like, everything on the line and, like, the mm. stability of his kingdom mm. on the line for Piers. I feel like that level of unreasonableness implies an infatuation that is not just like, hey, this is, you know, yeah. a convenient bond for both of us to have or hey we're Mm. friends and i feel like i should do some stuff for you also i think there's like very explicitly a comparison to how he behaves to peers and how he should be behaving to isabella his wife Mm. yes like you had her isabella and her family making that Mm. you're neglecting her for peers yeah 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 also interestingly his big final statement at the end of the book is we might equally aim the same charge at david who valued jonathan's love more than he did the love of women yeah, and we I was do. Like, yeah, we. Yeah, I hate to break it. <laughs> um, he also has, like, very early on, he has this comparison where he's like, "Is this one of the fabled friendships among heroes, David and Jonathan, Achilles and Patroclus, or is it homosexual?" <laughs> oh no, Pierre, we have some things to tell you. Yeah, but there was also this quote: "The existence of such a bond that is a blood brother bond." however, is supported by a great deal of circumstantial evidence, besides being a more plausible explanation for the preferential treatment than the gratuitous assumption that they were lovers. <laughs> and I was just kind of offended by that. I feel like Pierre Chaplis went into this with a bias. And I feel like we also went into this with a bias. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, it's definitely possible that mm. Edward and Piers are just really close and... Not yeah. having sex. And I think we should revisit this at the end when, like, further stuff has come to light. Because a lot of the chronicles we have are written towards the end of his reign or after his reign. And, like, stuff is going to happen in his reign mm-hmm. yeah. that influences this. I think it's just also the thing, like, what that quote really reflects for me is that tendency to kind of be like, let's think of literally any other option. And when we've dismissed those, then we can begin to consider. Yeah. Happiness. No, I see what you mean. It's that kind of anytime you see a close relationship... If it was a man and a woman, they would go, oh, they're lovers. Yeah. But when it's two men, they go, oh, that's gratuitous. Anyway, Piers is dead. Goodbye, Piers. Bye. So obviously, Edward is very, very upset about this. But he doesn't really have much of an avenue for revenge yet. Incidentally, uh, the Earl of Warwick, not that long after this, just kind of gets sick and dies. So, like, there's suggestions that he was poisoned by Edward. Mm. But, you know, mostly no revenge yet. So nothing to back up those suggestions, that just seems to no, make sense. No, it's just like, mm, okay. you're, a, you're a nobleman and you died in medieval England. Suspicious. <laughs> but, of course, this doesn't like really calm matters down. Edward is mad and not particularly inclined to deal well with his lords now. Mm-hmm. He also just gets new favourites, the dispensers. So there's you dispenser the older and you dispenser the younger. In what way are they related? Father and son. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you dispenser the younger is the young and hot one. <laughs> <laughs> also, if I say you dispenser, I mean you dispenser the younger. If I mean his dad, I'll specify because you dispenser the younger is far more prominent and around. Yeah. So it'll just be easier. The dispensers are considered by the rest of the lords as being much like Piers Gaveston. So they don't really have any inherent like worth or importance. They've just managed to raise themselves up by becoming important to the king. Mm-hmm. Eudespenser the Elder had served both Edward I and Edward II in campaigns, and the Younger had been a member of Edward's household since before he was king. So you remember at the beginning we mentioned 
uh, his little circle of young men when he was prince. One of mm-hmm. them was Eudes Spencer the Younger. Yes, I remember that. Yep. He is married to Eleanor of Clare, who is sister of the Earl of Gloucester, who is another one of Edward's young men. So 1314 through 1316 is just a mess. There's massive heavy rainfalls across Europe, and this leads to shortages of food, which creates soaring prices and therefore economic instability. This isn't just the case in England. This yeah. is like in a in a great number of places. We can't blame Edward for like rain. Okay. We can blame him for how he reacts to rain, but this was difficult yeah. in the first place. There's enough shortages that even Edward, as he's traveling around, sometimes struggles to have enough food. Mm-hmm. It gets even worse in 1315. And then because of this famine, there's massive unrest throughout the kingdom and crime, sores, instability gets worse. The Scots are raiding them because the Scots are likewise hard hit. And that means they occasionally are like obliged to go and deal with the Scots, but they don't have the funds to, and it doesn't really do anything. It just gets them into a worse economic position. So Edward is being thought of worse and worse by his people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Edward and Isabella and their household are at a banquet one day and they're watching all of these entertainers. And then a woman rides in on a horse wearing a mask and hands him a letter. <laughs> and he's like, this is hilarious. It must be part of the entertainment. Open it and read it aloud. And oh, it's this no. massive criticism about how he's a terrible king. <laughs> oh, no. I like that she came in in a mask. Yeah, me too. Good on her. Do we know who this woman is or is that so never recorded? So she's arrested and questioned and it's like one of his lords Sent decided her. to send this up and she's like let off. It's fine. Okay. Which I'm glad of because I think that was a real chance that they killed her. Yeah. But um, they didn't. They didn't kill her. Good. Yes. I liked her. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Chief among Edward's detractors at this point is the Earl of Lancaster who we've heard from before. Yep. Just in his role as like not liking anything Edward does. Mm-hmm. He has this thing where he wants to have any lands granted since 1310 given back to their original owners. Many people are mad about this because they want to keep their lands. And so this creates a rift with other lords that gets worse and worse. And the Earl of Lancaster, his rift with these other lords gets so bad that civil war is again threatening, which has pretty much been happening like fairly constantly since Edward became king. The Earl of Surrey goes to the extent of abducting the Earl of Lancaster's wife. <laughs> oh, the Chronicles say that she was pleased about it because she doesn't like her husband. I mean, maybe she doesn't. Everything's to be propaganda. Mm. In any case, the Earls are fairly united against the Earl of Lancaster. He starts refusing to attend Parliament unless Edward's courtiers are dismissed. And this just results in him being isolated off in his castle. Because I was like, no. Yeah, I was about mm. to say, what's that going to do do for him? Yeah. Mm. I feel like maybe he said that, like, very angrily in public, and then they were like, all right. And he was like, I'm leaving. And then it was like, oh, no. <laughs> they have another attempt to go and fight the Scots, and Lancaster has his men block them from leaving. So the Earl of Lancaster is desperate enough about his position that he makes contact with the Scots. And a bunch of his men with some of the Scotsmen attack and rob a party of the king's men, which accidentally includes two cardinals. Whoops. And the Pope just uses this as further evidence that Edward has no control over his country. Around this time, a man shows up and says that Edward II is an imposter and that he is the true son of Edward I. (laughs) He claims that Edward II is the son of a man who tricked his way into the household in order to make love to the queen. And therefore, Edward is truly low-born, and this is why he's the way he is. Edward was apparently just quite amused by all of this, but everyone was like, no, you can't allow this to be going on, and they killed him. How serious was this accusation? taken at the time like did 
people believe him? No, I think the general assumption is that he's kind of mad. Okay, yeah. Like, this wasn't ever going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, like, that quite outlandish story. He's just some guy, you know? Yeah. But the fact that that kind of made sense in a way, it's like, oh, you're lowborn. This is why you're bad at ruling and, like, too deep things. It kind of shows the climate of the time. But he just keeps promoting his favorites. He has learned nothing from the death of Piers. Why are you like this? He makes Euda Spencer the Younger his chamberlain, meaning that he controls access to Edward. Piers Gaveston had once held this position. There's like just generally less historical analysis on whether or not you and Edward were lovers. I feel like it's not. Un- if we start from the assumption that Edward and Pierce were lovers, mm, which I'm yeah. pretty willing to accept at this point, yeah. I think it's like very reasonable to assume that yeah. Edward and Hugh were lovers. Yeah, I think that does tend to happen that people just tend to be like, and eh, maybe this is all. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. There's not a lot on. There's also not a lot of information really getting in-depth and comparing you to Spencer and Piers Gaveston, which I think would be very, very interesting. Comparing them as people or their lives or Edward's attitude? Both them as people, specifically what roles they're given and when, just generally. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be worth doing. So you to Spencer, he seems much more overtly power-hungry, very actively trying to get as much land as possible. So Edward mm-hmm. has given him a bunch of land. Gilbert Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, who we've mentioned a couple yep. times, had been the most powerful of the lords of the Welsh marshes. So that's like all along the Welsh-English border. And he dies and this leaves this kind of power vacuum where his land goes to his three sisters. And one of those sisters is married to Eudas Spencer, so he scoops that mm-hmm. up. And then he's basically working at getting more through any way possible and making his lands more profitable. Other lords are getting very distressed about this. Prominent among these are the Roger Mortimers, Roger Mortimer and his nephew, Roger Mortimer. <laughs> Euda Spencer is described as being the king's right eye, but an eyesore to the rest of the kingdom. It's interesting that they said his right eye, but not his right hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the normal way to say that. I mean, presumably there's no such thing as a hand, so... Yeah, they were really set on that mediocre pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, Civil War, our old friend, it looms. So these Welsh lords are agitating. They get our good old friend, the Earl of Lancaster, on their side. Then there's also this situation where a Welshman named Llewellyn Bren led a revolt in 1316, and he was captured, and he surrenders, and he says, do whatever you want to me, but just leave my followers alone. And he's quite well respected because of that. Mortimer urges that they pardon him. The Bishop of Hereford also urges pardon. That might be not how you pronounce that, but we don't have an alternative. And if you wanted us to pronounce your places right, you shouldn't have sent our ancestors here. So. <laughs> Several of the lords are urging that he pardon Llewellyn Bren. And then Dispenser takes him off to Cardiff Castle and kills him without trial and takes his lands. Oh, that was uncool. It was uncool. So, right, he is bad. He is quite bad. I don't like him. I want Pierce back. Yeah. And the various Welsh lords are quite angry about this, and they start to lay waste to the dispenser's lands. I feel that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they start attacking in early 1321, and they take, like, a dozen castles very quickly. And they're absolutely just trashing their land. They're breaking in and destroying all their possessions. And they're flying the king's banner while they do it as kind of a symbol that, like, what we're doing is for the king, and it's for the good of the realm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Edward, our old friend, doesn't know what to do, because yeah. he never does. And some of his counselors tell him that he needs to go to war. 
And some of them say, no, invite them here and let them air their complaints and we'll have a discussion. Mm-hmm. They agree to do the latter, Good, uh, the Welsh lords, but they come heavily armed and it's all just very tense. And Edward doesn't really know what to do about this. And so he just tries to like delay them by taking a really long time at negotiations. Mm-hmm. He sends one of his men to go and check some castle fortifications in case they need to like flee and start being at war. And the guy just defects to the Welsh. And, <laughs> and then the king is essentially just putting it off and kind of hoping that it will resolve itself. How does he picture that occurring? I don't know that he has a plan here, Alice. <laughs> okay. He just puts stuff off sometimes. Relatable. And yeah, but you don't run a country. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> probably with good reason. You probably yeah. shouldn't, I reckon. I, I don't intend to. And the Welsh are really, really frustrated by this, obviously. And they threaten to set London on fire. Oh. And mediators kind of force Edward to accept terms. The dispensers are accused of any number of things, of restricting access to the king, making war, seizing too much yeah. power, which are all, like, pretty true. And they are found guilty of these, and they're banished. So the older goes off to France, and the younger stays nearby in the sea off of Kent and essentially becomes a pirate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, okay. He just traps any ships that come his way and just, like, robs them. So he is exactly he's a, a pirate. He's a pirate now. <laughs> okay. I did not expect Edward the second time a pirate boyfriend when this episode started, but okay. Edward essentially just doesn't have any supporters now, but he keeps just ignoring the ordinances. He's planning on overthrowing the banishment of the dispensers, and he summons a church assembly to discuss the matter. And he, along with these like selected churchmen, decide that it was unlawful and you dispenser the younger is offered protection and then quite soon after they're recalled. Haven't he literally been robbing ships? Though? Yes. But that's just fine. <laughs> Look, he's the king. Okay. Um, so what he's done by calling these churchmen is essentially avoided having to get Parliament's approval because once he has this group of religious authorities yeah. who are like, yeah, cool, they can't really do anything about it. So again, he's pretty reasonable at getting stuff done when he can actually like be bothered to... Yes, yeah. So his major skill as a monarch is getting his boyfriends to come home. Yes. That's like the only thing that he can achieve effectively. He's achieved this several times. Yeah. He orders that the Welsh agitators get arrested, and this includes the Mortimers, Roger Mortimer and Roger Mortimer. (laughs) And they surrender and they're sent off to the Tower of London. Edward's army and the rebelling army meet in the Battle of Boroughbridge, and Edward wins, and the Earl of Lancaster is captured. And he declares him a traitor and beheads him. The Earl of Lancaster was on the Welsh side at this point. Yeah, so the Welsh had gone and got him on their side because they knew that he didn't like Edward. Yeah. And was pretty desperate. So now he kind of has some revenge for Piers. Two of the main guys who are involved in getting Piers killed are dead. That's good. That's nice. I'm happy. Yep. So he has a period of time now where he's actually kind of doing pretty well. He's wiped out some major opposition. He regains power. Harvests are going better. Oh, that's nice. The Roger Mortimers are in the tower. They've both been sentenced to death, and the older one dies in prison just because, like, being in the Tower of London is pretty rough. Mm-hmm. But the younger one manages to survive for a bit longer, and then his sentence is commuted to life in prison. Okay. Again, opposition to Edward and to the dispensers begins to rise, and this time it's led by Queen Isabella and the Bishop of Hereford, among various others. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Wait, Isabella, his wife? Yep, Isabella, his wife. She's just like, no, this is enough, Edward, yeah. I'm bringing you down? Yes, exactly okay. that. Like, that's not unreasonable. I feel like as his wife, she's been in a pretty bad position. Like She has. She came over at 12. Yeah, and he hasn't, like, done any good for her. Yeah. Did they have children? They did. They um, have, like, three, I think. They have a son. He'll become relevant. 
Okay. You know, because he's going to be king. Did they name him Edward? They just named him Edward. Cool. Uh, and I know he has at least two daughters. There might be others. Okay. And then this little faction, like Isabella and the bishop and so forth, help the younger Roger Mortimer, now the only Roger Mortimer, escape. Mm-hmm. So they drug the guards and he gets out into the kitchen and it climbs up out the chimney and then he gets off the roof by a rope ladder and then they get him a rowboat and he rows away and then eventually he gets to France. That was good. Yeah. So the dispensers at this point have all of their original lands and more and they're getting even more. And some mm-hmm. of this, as we've touched on a little bit, is by criminal means. So, for example, Eudas Spencer the Younger kidnaps an heiress until her land is given to him. Uh, and, of course, people are not cool with this. Yeah. There's just been so much moving of lords around that yeah. huge areas haven't really been kept up mm-hmm. effectively and everything like that. And so people generally begin to be more sympathetic to the queen. Even some of Edward's old, like, boyhood friends are going over to her side. I am more sympathetic to the queen. I'm just super impressed that we're about to have, like, a civil war between the king and his wife. Yeah, I mean, you know that you've not done too well as the king at that point, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the dispensers view Queen Isabella as being the source of the trouble at this mm-hmm. point. And so they start trying to sow discord between her and Edward. I feel like discord has already been sown. I was going to say, yeah. They're worsening it. Apparently they try to get the marriage annulled. On any specific grounds? Or just like... Well, I know that part of what they do is that they try to kind of spread propaganda against her as a French woman. So Mm -hmm. they say that, well, if the French invade, that she's going to help them and they can use her lands as a base. So we need to take her land away. Is there a risk of the French invading? No. No, they're literally (laughs) allies, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I I mean, look. (laughs) They also do this thing periodically where they just arrest a bunch of French people because, you know, they could be traitorous. Okay. And she's very, very upset, and she writes to the French king about this, who by this time is Charles IV, her brother, instead of her father, mm-hmm. who is now dead. And they kind of want to calm this down a bit, so they say, Edward, come over, like, make homage, and have some negotiations with the French crown. Yeah. And he's like, look, I'm really busy, I'm going to send an envoy. So they send some envoys, and it makes no progress, and they get sent back. And instead, Isabella's like, I'll go. <laughs> and so she goes. And she does very, very well. She does some very good negotiating. And her brother also says, look, I'll give you financial support. If you need financial support, you can live here. And she's like, why, thank you. (laughs) And they still want Edward to come over. And the dispensers are quite afraid that if he goes, then everything will fall apart for them. Yeah. And so they say, like, don't do that. Send your son instead. And he goes, oh, yeah, okay. And then they send the heir of the throne over to Isabella in France. How old is the son at this point? He's 13. Okay. So Isabella's just left with the edge of the phone. Yep. Cool. Good job, Edward. You're bad at this, Edward. You're yeah. bad at this job. <laughs> so Edward II doesn't immediately realize that he's, like, royally screwed up. He just expects his wife and son to come home at some point, and then they don't. And then it's- they send all their men home, and he's like, come back. And she's like, no. No. Is he just not aware of how his wife feels about the situation at this time? Is he just too oblivious? I think he's a little bit too oblivious. Yeah, he's not fully cognizant of, like, I think what's at risk here. Okay. She writes to him and she says that she knew that there had been attempts to destroy their marriage and that she would return when the men responsible for it were gone, so the dispensers. Mm-hmm. And until then, she was going to consider herself to be a widow. Oh. Ouch, yeah. 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 Her brother would pay for her to live in France or give her an army to invade if she wanted one. <laughs> Oh, wow. And Edward's like, what? Why? The dispensers have always been good friends to you. What are you doing? Leave my son out of this. Her brother is fantastic, though. I like she goes to him and he's like, yeah. Yeah, your husband is quite bad. If you want to invade, look, I've got an army. Yeah. He writes to his son and is like, Edward, come home. Don't marry anyone without my permission. (laughs) (laughs) 
And all of the bishops are writing to her and being like, Isabella, get back here. And she's like, nope, not doing it. And then she and her son are declared enemies and formally banished from the kingdom. But still married. Still married, yeah. And he's still the heir to the throne. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what a mess. And then she starts an affair with Roger Mortimer. Oh, he's in France now? Yeah, he went to France when they broke him out of the Tower of London. He just like, oh, to France. that's right. He did run away to France. And they're like, hey, I hear you hit Edward II. Shall we take this to the bedroom? (laughs) (laughs) That's a solid pickup line, isn't it? (laughs) And the dispensers really, really stress this relationship in order to smear her reputation. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very effective. Charles, her brother, starts refusing her help. He won't give her any more money. He bans anyone else from giving her any more money as well. Aww. And it goes, go back to England, go back to your husband. And she leaves, but she goes elsewhere and she manages to raise an army and a fleet. Where? And she comes to England and is just like, hey, um, I'm the queen. Do you want to like, be in my army? And they're like, yes. <laughs> oh, I see. She raised an army in yeah. England. She manages to raise, um, I think, like, part of our army beforehand just from like other European allies that she mm-hmm. personally and then she goes over there and she keeps raising one Edward is panicking and he tries <laughs> this is very funny to me I'm sorry he tries to get a fleet together but because Eunice Benson was basically a pirate <laughs> <laughs> whoops they refuse <laughs> he's trying to get an army together and no one wants to be in his army and Isabella's just walking across England and picking up an army as she goes. <laughs> he goes to all the Londoners and they're like, will you be in my army? And they're like, oh, look, we can like, wait and see. <laughs> and then Isabella shows up and is like, do you want to be in my army? And they're like, we would love to be in your army. There's just general chaos in London. Some Londoners just behead two of Edward's men. Just random Londoners do this? Yeah, I think so. They're ransacking the houses of anyone who's associated with Edward. They're breaking prisoners out of the tower. And so the Queen takes London. She has conquered London. (laughs) And Edward flees. And (laughs) Isabella is taking lands and giving them back to previous owners. The older Eudes Spencer tries to hold the castle, but the citizens who are, like, living in that castle side with Isabella (laughs) and just kind of hand him over. And he is captured and sentenced to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And then that occurs. Goodbye, Hugh Dispenser. Okay. <laughs> yes. So that was the older. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. So the pirate's still here. The pirate's still here. Edward is still fleeing and trying desperately to raise an army and completely failing to raise an army. I feel bad about how funny this is because it's really about to get quite sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop laughing. No, no, no. But it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> And then he is captured along with Euda Spencer the Younger and like a few others who are with him. Euda Spencer the Younger is essentially put to a kind of mock trial and he is also hung, drawn, and quartered. Mm-hmm. His head is displayed on London Bridge. Ooh. Yes. That was a thing they used to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sure did, but it was always gross. Yeah, it always was, yes. At this point, Isabella has Edward's seal and she's issuing documents in name from Edward. Why didn't she just come to an agreement with Edward where she just gets to run the country and he can just go and, like... He never would have allowed that. (laughs) In this situation, I guess, where he isn't going to run the country, but he also has too much pride to let anyone else do it. I think it's... We also do have to recognise that him just giving away a lot of power is quite dangerous for him. Yeah. 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 It doesn't really seem like she's trying to depose him so much at this point. She's just trying to, like get her standing back and get rid of the dispensers. But others were very clearly at this point being like, they're going to depose the king. In January of 1327, nobles and churchmen all swear allegiance to his son and they appoint a new government and he's effectively been deposed. This is the first time this happens in England. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
The 14-year-old, now Edward III, refuses to become king without consent from his father. Oh. A bunch of nobles go to Edward II and they say, look, just hand in the crown. And he is dressed all in black, he's grooving, he's sobbing, and eventually he begs for everyone's pardon and expresses joy that his son is going to be his successor and says, yep, be king. He just has no choice. He has to say this. Yeah. Is he grieving for his kingship or for Hugh Dispenser? Presumably for, yeah. I'd say for the entire situation. His yeah. life is falling off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At this point, though, even though they have Edward captured and deposed, he technically remains a threat. So they're moving him around a lot. We don't really know how accurate the chronicles are, but they paint this very sad picture of him as just kind of a broken man. He's not eating well. He doesn't really get to sleep very much. He's being constantly moved around. His lords deliberately keep him in a state of uncertainty by constantly changing their attitudes towards him. Mm. So he doesn't know when someone comes in if they're going to be kind to him or if they're going to be abusive yeah that's yeah yes i do feel bad for him now yeah and then the news comes that the king is dead or the ex-king is dead i suppose technically and there's early confusion in the manuscripts about this several either say just that he is dead with no further details or Mm -hmm. they express doubt about what has happened however by the 1340s the story that's being circulated about how he died is that he was held down a funnel was inserted into his anus and then a like, white hot metal rod was inserted into that Aww. and it was twisted around until he died. Okay. What? Okay. Yeah. So quite often the reason that has been given for this is that they didn't want there to be any visible damage to the body. So that if you stab the king in the heart, for example, then there's yeah. a stab wound in the heart. Yeah. But this way they could plausibly say that he just died of illness or whatever. Having said that, you can just put a pillow on someone's face. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The other argument that scholars generally give is that this is in deliberate reference to the fact that by this point, Edward has a reputation as a sodomite. Mm-hmm. So there are direct allegations of him being a sodomite in the Chronicles, but it's not until 1326 onwards. And these are generally understood to be part and part of this discourse that's going around about how he just fundamentally doesn't embody the like masculine traits required for him to be a good king. Mm-hmm. So these ideas that he really likes to dig ditches and swim and look at architecture and things like that, and that he's very gluttonous and very lazy and things like that, are all part of this wider image of portraying him as being just degenerate and not able to rule properly. Yeah. And sodomy is a part of that image. Okay. So this is all very much contributing to paint him as, like, not man enough and therefore is effeminate. But I will just quickly note that effeminacy at this time, like, it today has this sort of inherent uh, association with male homosexuality. Mm-hmm. It didn't so much back then. So basically any type of overindulgence is seen as feminizing. So a man who is way too into women and spends way too much time seducing women is seen to be effeminate. Okay. Yeah. That okay. is odd. And I think the idea is that that kind of morally undermines him. You know, yeah. you've got this idea of what a man is meant to be, and it's a very religious Christian idea that's very much based on kind of like discipline and so forth at the time. Mm. Yeah. And that's very tied into like, you know, you're able to do your duties as a government figure, as a military mm. man, as a king, whatever. And if you're drinking too much, if you're hanging out with lowborn folk, if you're, you know, can't control yourself and are just off sleeping with women all the time, or of course, if you're involved in sodomy, then you're not going to be able to do that, and therefore you're kind of unmanned. Yeah. 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 Yes. That makes sense. 
Yeah, like it's awful. <laughs> it has an internal logic. It has an internal logic. Um, I remember that's what we said about the Romans as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Queer as fact, it has an internal logic. <laughs> so the earliest accusation of Edward being a sodomite that we have comes from the Bishop of Hereford from October of 1326. Sorry, what year did he die? 1327. So the Bishop of Hereford is said to have called Edward a tyrant and a sodomite in order to subvert the status of Edward II. So that's pretty blatantly, like, you yeah. know the Bishop of Hereford, did some propaganda. Yeah. It's only really after this that it starts to appear more later. So a little while later, there are chronicles that say about the coronation, the mad folly of the King of England, rejected by God and men, was so overcome with his own wickedness and desire for sinful, forbidden sex that he banished his royal wife and her sweet embraces from his side. Okay. And then by the 1390s, there's very blatant uh, statements that Edward took too much delight in sodomy. Okay. So it's definitely propaganda. Like, it's very blatantly that this is propaganda. But that doesn't mean that it's a lie. No, exactly. I was going to say that could be, yeah, founded in fact that was just not Mm. a problem up until then. Yeah, and also if you're looking for propaganda about someone and you look at someone who has had these male Mm favourites and all this, then, like... Yeah, he could have been vulnerable to it. Yeah. exploited it. It is also worth noting that sodomy isn't a particularly clear-cut thing at the time so right now we today would think of sodomy as being like anal sex Mm -hmm. generally between two men but wasn't as clear-cut at the time so a definition that came from uh, an article i read by a scholar named ormrod defined it as a category of sin and crime that encompassed many forms of non-procreative sexual practices Mm mm-hmm so things like bestiality and oral or anal sex between a man and a woman. And modern historians really take advantage of this ambiguity to basically deny that there's any reference to homosexuality whatsoever. Mm. But Ormrod argued, and I am inclined to agree, that given that there's this very public knowledge of his far too close friendships with men, which are a major reason why he's politically declined, and this general, general sodomy accusation and the nature of his death combines mm-hmm. to create this picture about him having certain preferences that were probably used to help depose him. Yeah. 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 I think that makes sense. So there, there is lastly kind of the question of, was it that there was already this propaganda about Edward and then he was murdered in this particular way in light of that? Or was it that he was murdered and then because this was the picture of him, this rumour, this lie about how he died was later formed? Hmm, that's true. I suppose we don't know that that's how he was killed, do we? No, not really. It doesn't appear immediately Mm. either. It's a fairly outlandish execution. Like, I'd be inclined to question that a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure if that even would have been that beneficial for them as a piece of propaganda at the time. Like, that's a very cruel way to murder someone. Yeah. Yeah. And if they were going for cruel ways to murder someone, we've sort of already established they have conventions for this. We've, like, hung, drawn, and quartered a bunch of people. We sure have. Mm. Also, it would seem to murder him in that way to make a point about his sodomy, but also, obviously, if it didn't come out at the time, but later, to not make a public point about sodomy. Yeah. It doesn't quite hold up. Yeah. It was also noted by a couple of scholars that some chronicles say it's not clear that when Uta Spencer was killed, they first cut off his genitals. Okay. Uh, and Ormrod kind of saw those things in conjunction with each other. I mean, I guess it makes sense if the problem that the people who killed these men had 
or one of the major problems they had with them was that they were having sex that they shouldn't have been having, then both those mm. ways of killing them tie into that. I don't know that they were having sex that they shouldn't have been having is really the problem there. Like, mm. the problem is the way that that relationship is affecting politics and things like that, and they've gone to the sort of sodomy accusations as a propaganda piece. Well, like, th- that's not the root of the problem. I think the root of the problem is that they see Edward as being weak and insufficiently masculine to do mm. his job, and he is therefore easily ruled by these other men. And both his political actions and this alleged you're being sodomized in the bedroom are essentially that narrative. Mm. So I think the whole you're having their own kind of sex kind of is the problem, but it's really just part and parcel of the wider way he's seen at the time. Yeah. Final impressions? Yes, gay, no gay? Yes, gay. Probable gay. Mm, Yeah, that's more how I'm inclined to view it. I guess the thing where our only real source is the Chronicles, and we do need to keep in mind that the Chronicles don't know what it's doing. That's true. I mean, if I somehow found out from some, you know, Edward's personal diary emerged. (laughs) (laughs) And it was revealed that he was not gay and he was just super fond of these men in a friend's way. I would be like, well, there was no actual evidence to the contrary, but I would be surprised. It's one of those things where we have to have that conversation about, like, when we say, was it gay, what do we mean? You know? Yeah. Because I think it's possible that no sex ever happened. I, I'm inclined to think that Piers and Edward had a bunch of sex, frankly. But it's possible that they didn't. But and they... we know that an established, like, relationship between two young men in a blood brotherhood way was normal. But at some point it becomes not normal, and they've crossed that. But I still think that, like, quantifying what makes them a gay couple is hard. I don't know. That sentence went for too long. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like... We can argue about whether or not they're gay, but they're still, yeah, they're having a relationship that's socially unacceptable. Yeah. I think that was the big problem with the whole, like, blood brotherhood explanation for me is because it essentially posited this quite, uh, like, socially recognized, acceptable framework for the relationship. And they're apparently just not doing that. They're apparently doing something that is offensive to his wife. Yeah, yeah, that this is so clearly, even if it was something that was at some point couched within that, was just beyond the pale. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel differently about you, Dispenser? I don't feel super differently about you, Dispenser, to be honest. Like, he's a less... He's a more obviously bad person. <laughs> yes. I think that might be a lot of the difference there. It's just that the information we have about him is not the same kind of information. Like, mm. there's no coronation where he can put Hugh Dispenser's coat of arms on his... No. There's more obviously a case where Hugh Dispenser's clearly very power-hungry and is actively mm. trying to build a power base for himself. But... Do you think it's possible that this is something where he, like, exploited Edward's potential feelings for him? Or do you think there's something to indicate that they were, like, a couple there? Yeah, no, that's definitely possible that he sort of... There's that precedent with peers and... Hugh Dispenser is taking advantage of Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Especially perhaps having grown up with Piers and Edward and sort of having viewed and understood the dynamic of that relationship, he may be more able to sort of exploit that and step into that role when Piers is gone. Mm. It's why I think there should really be more work on Hugh Dispenser because there's this very clear kind of line drawn from like Piers and Edward, her best friends in childhood, and then that kind of goes on uninterrupted until Piers dies. So they're very much couched as this, like, friends from childhood kind of thing. And Mm. then Eudas Spencer had that relationship with him as well. He was part of his household as well. But because he comes to prominence later in his life, 
What I saw of him didn't really seem to construct his place in Edward's life the same way as being like lifelong friend mm. who then kind of came to be the center of his affections. Yeah, so I'd be interested to see if you'd looked at like all of the sources and tried to put together a really like unified arc of you dispenser's life, what you ended up with. Yeah, because I just felt like a lot of it did kind of feel the same, those sorts of elaborate schemes to get him unbanished and that kind of thing. Mm. I think Edward is pretty much thinking of him the same way. Yeah. How you dispenser felt about it and if we could make any kind of comparison between his relationship with Edward and Piers' relationship with Edward and contrast them in any meaningful way, I think kind of remains to be seen. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much for listening. We've been Queer as Fact. I'm Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. You can find us on Tumblr as Queer as Fact, on Twitter as Queer as Fact, and on Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to email us directly, we would love to hear from you. We're at queerasfact at gmail.com. We're also now on iTunes, so you can go and find us on there for easy listening. And while you're doing that, you should give us a big five stars and a very positive review (laughs) or whatever you think we deserve. I've made my feelings known. We'll be back on the 15th of January when I'll be talking to you about Baron von Steuben, who has been called the father of the American army and the gay dad of the American revolution. See you then. Thank you.